You may turn in your Bibles, if you would like, to Philippians chapter 2, which John Rice just read for us. It's on page 981 in your pew Bible. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2, focusing heavily on a phrase in verse 16. Let me pray for us. Um, Heavenly Father, you speak through the prophet Isaiah and say that when your word goes forth, it's like the rain and it falls down on the earth and it gives growth. And Lord, that growth is often imperceptible at first to us. But I do ask, Lord, as your word now goes forth by our attending to it, that Lord God, you would, you would do a work and that we would grow. We pray this in your name. Amen. I recently joined a small cohort of younger pastors. We're, we're all in our first decade of ministry. Um, and we're, we've been convened uh, to meet uh, a few times a year with a seasoned pastor, uh, a man in his 70s who recently retired, is a well-known writer and leader. And we meet with him and he teaches us things about the pastoral work. And before our first meeting, which was in this past fall, he sent us a signed reading to get us ready for the topic we would talk about. What do you think a pastor in his 70s would send young pastors right now to read? What do you think he would want us to talk about? I mean, we've all been to seminary already. We know the basics. Maybe things on executive leadership or, or how to navigate contentious cultural issues. Well, I didn't get to the reading till the plane ride there. And so I was, I was kind of surprised to be sitting on an airplane holding an encyclopedia entry from the 1915 edition of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. And the, the title of this article from the encyclopedia was one word, Inspiration. That was the, the title. And it was a, a 1,300-word meticulous treatment by B.B. Warfield, former principal of Princeton Theological Seminary. It was something of a tour de force treatment of a single phrase from the Bible. It's from 2 Timothy 3.16. It's the phrase, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And this was Warfield's attempt to establish or reestablish the divine origins and divine authority of the Bible. And as I worked my way through this really brilliant essay, I was struck afresh by an old truth. For Christians, things really do stand or fall. Things really do stand or fall based on our relationship to the Word of God. Individuals' lives, families, institutions, churches, denominations, the trajectory of these things is determined in great measure by one's relationship to the Word of God. Is it, is it, is this 
really a word from God, or is it merely the words of men? How we answer that question and how we relate to the Bible affects everything. It's not a truth that you outgrow. This is what my mentor was stressing to us. So as we continue this January considering disciplines that disciples of Jesus have often kept, disciplines like prayer last week, next Sunday we'll talk about the discipline of serving others. Today we're going to talk about the discipline of adhering to or abiding in the Word of God. Or what Paul says or how Paul phrases it, we're going to ask what it means to practice the discipline of holding fast to the word of life. That's the phrase right there in Philippians 2 verse 16. And Paul sets it forth not in an attempt to argue for the validity of the Bible, but to assert its power. And what he's doing in this little, little section, verses 14 through 16, is he's saying first that he wants the Philippians to shine as lights, as children of God, to shine as lights in a crooked and twisted world. That's verse 15. How are they going to shine as lights? Verse 16 answers, by holding fast to the word of life. But then Paul looks forward to the future, not just presently shining as lights, but in the future. And he goes on to say that holding fast to the word of life will prepare them, you see this in verse 16, so that on the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I have not labored in vain or run in vain. Paul's, Paul's looking forward to the future when there will be a day when everyone assembles to be judged before the judgment seat of Christ. And you may not know this, but if you have had a pastor, your pastors will be brought forward and they will be judged. James says, James 3.1, not many should teach because teachers will be held to a higher standard and they will be judged on what they taught you. But Paul's saying, I want to be proud in that moment that I didn't run in vain so that when you're presented, you have held fast to the word of life. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying holding fast to the word of life has implications for the present and implications for the future. And so I just want to take this phrase, holding fast to the word of life. And I want to ask for you or for me, for us, what does it mean to heed this admonition? What does it mean to understand it in 2024? And the the way I want to go about this is simply taking the phrase apart one section at a time. So, so first, I want to look at word, the word word. What does it mean to hold fast to a word? Not a feeling, not a leader, not a tradition, but a word. Second, I want to ask what Paul means by qualifying the word with life. What does it mean that it's a word of life? And then finally, very practically, what does it mean to hold fast to it? So word, life, holding fast. That's how we'll walk through this. So first word. The Christian is to hold fast, not to a feeling or a movement or a tradition, but a word. And by word, I think Paul means Scripture, especially in as much as Scripture is bearing witness to Christ. 
But this, this witness of truth or witness of who Jesus is, it comes to the Philippians and it comes to us as a word. It's concrete. It's objective. It's articulate. You can read it. Now, what is the significance of this? It may seem obvious that Christians have a word, but what is the significance of it? I want to suggest two things. The word both is a revelation and a rule, and I'll, I'll consider each one. So first, it, this is a revelation. The Word of God is a revelation, and through it, God reveals to us the most important things we simply have to know, that there is a God, what that God is like, where we come from, what we're like, what our value lies in. What happened to us? What's wrong with us? How do we get fixed? Can we get fixed? Is there life after death? Do we have a soul and a body? Is there help for us in our deepest need? The Word of God reveals answers to these questions. And, and you could say, you could put it like this. The Bible, the Word of God, frames reality. It frames reality for people that are otherwise lost. In the Pali Canon of Buddhism, there's a story of a monk who comes to the Buddha with questions that he feels are of the utmost importance. And he says to the Buddha, if you can answer these, I will follow you. And so he asks, is the world eternal or does it have an end? Does a person continue to exist after death or not? Is there a soul separate from the body or not? But the Buddha responds saying to the monk that he never intended, nor will he answer questions like this. Rather, the Buddha says, the religious life does not depend on dogma. And by dogma, he means it doesn't depend on doctrinal answers to these macro great worldview questions. And instead, what the Buddha does is he gives a type of therapeutic technique, a psychological way to detach from suffering and reach peace and then live a peaceable life and hopefully reach a state called nirvana. But answers to these great questions, an architecture or a worldview to locate yourself in reality, that, that he does not have. Now, in a similar vein, neither does a purely scientific worldview answer these types of questions. The telescope and the microscope tell us really neat things about what's there, but not why it's there or ultimately what it's for, or ultimately where you come from, or what you've, you're for, or why you should value all people equally. But you see, the Word, the Bible that we're supposed to hold on to, this is exactly what it does. It addresses these fundamental questions that are simply the questions that if you want to live a meaningful, coherent life, you have got to know answers to. And you can, you can see how this is being worked out if you'll look at the Philippians carefully. Remember the Philippians, that this letter is written to real people, it's a real historical group of people. They live in Philippi, it's a Roman colony, and they're likely most from a Roman or Greek background. So they would have grown up and for most of their lives, 
had a kind of a world where there's multiple deities and there's kind of chaos and you have a couple little idols in your home and you, you do incantations and you pray to some and you're completely genuine about this, but you're trying to bring order to chaos and you're hoping against fate that the gods act kindly towards you. You, you would have been raised with a very clear way to evaluate human beings based on ethnicity and social class. And you would have been given a moral structure that was far more lenient to men than it was to women. Now watch, if we peer into this little section of the letter, you can see how the Word is reframing reality for them. So you have the reality of God in verse 15. Paul speaks of being children of God. And throughout the letter, he can just talk about God, assuming they know now that there's only one true God. And if there's only one true God, only one true source of truth, you now have true north for your compass. He then speaks of in this phrase in verse 15, children of God. We read right past that, but beneath the phrase children of God is the radical Christian idea that anybody, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian, man or woman, anybody through Jesus can become a member of the family of God. Radical idea. And then you have all these assumptions about morality. In verse 15, Paul can speak of being blameless and innocent. Well, what does that mean? It means there's some sort of moral standard they're learning. He can speak of a crooked generation. That's a moral evaluation. And what's happening is the Philippians are being reframed, reoriented around the holiness of God as the map that dictates their ethics and morality. Friends, this has shaped the Western world in ways we can hardly imagine. The Word reveals reality to us. It's like handing someone a map who's lost. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Where am I? You're here. And, and this is the broader landscape. This is what's going on. This is partly why you feel the way you do. And this path goes to nowhere, and that path goes to somewhere. The Word of God is a revelation but it's also a rule. So it reveals reality, but it becomes a rule by which we can then measure what is true and what is false. You know, it's always been sobering to me to recognize how quickly false teaching and deception were a problem in the church. Immediately this happened. Let me just give you a quick overview of ancient Turkey, right? These are all from letters in the New Testament. So to the Christians in Galatia, that's a region, there were people distorting the word there. So Paul writes Galatians 1.6, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ to the area of Colossae. Paul points out that people are claiming to have visions that are as authoritative as the word and add to the word. This is what happened with Islam. It's what happens with Mormonism. People had a vision and it adds on to the Word. So Paul says, this is Colossians 2, 18 through 19, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions and not holding fast to the head. John the Apostle addresses Christians all across Turkey in his first letter warning about antichrists. Notice what he says, 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour, 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they were not of us. The pure Word of God has always, will always be assailed by deception and false teaching. And note well that the majority of these false teachers come from within the church, not from outside of it. They can be pastors like me. They can be bishops. They can even be popes. So I want to ask you, how will you adjudicate between the pure and false gospels in the world? What will be your final appeal to know whether or not you're being hoodwinked? Will you appeal to reason, tradition, a cultural sentimentality of what feels nice? If you're an adult, will it be your children as they change views in college? Will that be your North Star? If you're a child, will it be your parents' views? What will you finally appeal to to know what truth is? Paul's answer, hold fast to the word of life. It's objective. It's clear. It's concrete. You have a copy of it. Test everything by it. That's why it's significant we hold on to a word, not a charismatic leader, not a denomination, not a movement, not a cultural milieu, not a feeling. We hold fast to the word. So that's word. I want to ask what Paul means when he refers to it as a word of life. Now, this is actually the only time Paul uses the phrase word of life. You might expect him to say word of Christ, word of God. He says word of life. And I think what he means by this is that the word is life-giving. And I think you can see just from this little section that the word gives life eternally. This is why Paul connects holding fast to the word with being presented on the day of Christ in the future, meaning your eternal life is tied to this word. This is because through the word of God, the object of our faith, Jesus, is presented to us. And that's the object of having eternal life, belief in Him. So the Word can open your eyes to the path of eternal life. But also there's, there's a present dynamic here. Um, this notion that He wants us to shine brightly among a crooked generation by holding fast to the Word suggests that it's almost like a light bulb being screwed in and lighting up all of a sudden, that the more you screw yourself down into the Word, the more brightly you shine, that you connect with an actual electrical current of vibrancy of life now. So, the Word gives life, but I, I want to just ask with you, just to dive a little bit more deeply and ask specifically, how does the Word give life? Because it is not simply by reading it, or memorizing it, or understanding it. You know people, I know people, who know the Bible and read the Bible and would not call it a Word of life. They know every word, don't believe any of it. It's not a Word of life for them. The Pharisees knew the Word. And it was not a word of life for them. Satan knows the word. He could quote it to Jesus in Jesus' temptation. And he would not call it a word of life. So how does this go from being an ancient book, a cultural artifact filled with beautiful poetry, epic stories, very important to your family, very important to the canon of Western literature. How does it go from being that 
which is all just a dead letter to being the word of life. I'll state the principle of how this works and then unpack it. The Bible goes from being a mere book to a living word when the Spirit of God works through it to illumine the heart of the reader and the reader responds in faith. So they don't just read it, they believe it. Now, so you've got the Spirit working and faith working. And, and just let me unpack these a little bit. Um, there is a close relationship in the Bible between God's Word and God's Spirit. So you, you could see it like this. There's a relationship between the Spirit of God and the breath of God. And you see this in Genesis 2-7 when God creates Adam. When, when he puts the Spirit into Adam, it says he breathes into him the breath of life with the word ruach, the same word for spirit. So he breathes into him. So breath and spirit are like this. But the word of God is also connected to the breath of God. And you can, you can see this if you just put your hand in front of your mouth when you talk. When you say words, you feel breath. So breath and spirit, breath and word, you can see that the word of God is in part the spirit of God going forth in an articulate, clear way, which is why the word is so powerful. It's why God creates the universe. The spirit's hovering over the waters and then he speaks. He creates all things by his spirit working through his word. He creates the first humans by speaking with his spirit working through his word. And then when you read through the rest of history, Whenever God calls a person and fashions a person and constitutes a people, it is always by his spirit working by his word. So he speaks, the breath coming out with words, he speaks to Abraham, Genesis 12, and calls him. He speaks to Moses and calls him, then takes him up on a mountain and speaks the word of God, the law of God. That will then form and constitute his people, Israel. Prophets continue to speak to try to reconstitute Israel. Then in the book of Acts, when we see the birth of the church, what happens? Spirit and word. The Spirit's poured out in Acts 2. Peter gets up and he preaches clear words, the word of God. You can read it in Acts 2. And the Spirit working through those words births, births the church. Paul says for each one of us, if you're a Christian, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Here's the principle. God has decided to work by His Spirit through His Word. And this is how He creates His people. Now let me just point out um, an implication of this. Sometimes you'll hear people say that, and this is kind of a, a subtle attempt sometimes to kind of undermine the Bible. They'll say, well, it's not really the Word of God. The church gave us the Bible. You know, it, it was the apostles who wrote it down. And then in the third and fourth century, it was the people of God, the church, that determined, you know, what goes into what we call the canon. These books go in, those books don't. So really, at the end of the day, this book was created by man. Man made the Word of God. But I want you to see this is totally upside down. Throughout Throughout history, from the very creation of Adam and Eve, it is always the Word of God that creates the people of God. Always. God speaks. Adam and Eve come about. He speaks. Abraham comes about. He speaks. Israel's founded. He speaks through Peter in Acts 2 and the church is founded, which is why Paul can say in Ephesians 2.20, 
that the household of God is founded upon the apostles, New Testament, and the prophets, Old Testament, with Christ being the cornerstone. God's word always creates God's people. It's not the other way around. So when the church in the early centuries delineated and said, these are the 66 books, they weren't creating them. It was more like a person at the U.S. Mint that was simply distinguishing between fool's gold and pure gold. Yeah, this is the real thing. These are, the, these are the witnesses. These are the apostles. These are the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus endorsed in his own life. And these are the New Testament books that he authorized when he sent out the apostles. And we know this. We're connected to the eyewitness and we see the witness of Christ coming through. So they're just acknowledging it. They're not creating it. The Spirit working through the Word is what makes it powerful to create God's people. Um, I want to say a little bit more here. I know this is a little bit technical, but it's so crucial. And you ought to wonder how the Bible goes from being a mere book to a living word. So the Spirit works through it, and the Spirit is the power of God. But then what happens in a particular individual when you actually start to think this is the Word of God? And I mean, you're like a real grown-up. You think about stuff. You went to university, and like you really believe this. What happens? What the Spirit does is the Spirit loves to illuminate Christ. So what the Spirit does is it begins to work through the Word as you read it on your heart, and it, it softens your heart through all types of things, maybe suffering, maybe need. You don't realize it's the Spirit doing it, but it's happening. Scales start to come off your eyes, and suddenly what you see through the witness of this is it's almost like hearing a harmony that makes sense. It's like the harmony you've, wanting to be, you've wanted to hear, and it's answering questions you have, and it's putting things in order about yourself. And suddenly you start to see, this is what the Spirit loves to do, shine, as it were, a spotlight on the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And you begin to see this glory. It's a peculiar glory. It's this idea that there is a great God, and He's holy, and He's perfect, He's righteous, and yet he stoops down and he's lowly, and he's again and again merciful and gracious. All through the Old Testament, this is what God is like and begins to move you. And you're like, I need to know there's a God, and it would be amazing to my heart if God was like that. And then you begin to see in the face of Jesus, not just a story or a book, but you begin to realize this is God actually acting towards you. I actually know you, God is saying. I love you. I have written you on the palm of my hand. I will never forget you. I will never hold you to a lower standard than the highest standard of righteousness, ever. And I will always stoop down to a cross to cleanse you from your sin. And you see this lion who is also a lamb. And you see him looking at you. And this is what the Spirit begins to do to the eyes of your heart. And you respond in faith. And you don't need to have all the answers to every book of the Bible any more than you need to understand everything about Bach to enjoy his music. You just know this is the answer to the question in my deepest soul. And you believe. You see, finally believing in the Bible is not come to by logical reasoning or historical reasoning. These things help. I could tell you all about the historical validity of the Bible, how the manuscripts were transmitted, all the archaeological evidence behind it. But that would not make the Word come to life. When the Word comes to life, it's not through a step of reasoning. It's through a step of sight. 
which immediately appeals to your heart and you see your Lord and it's beyond all controversy. Here's how John Calvin puts it in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin says this, God's word ought indeed to be enough to engender faith in us if our blindness and stubbornness did not prevent it. But the bare word profits nothing without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. God's word is like the sun, for it shines on all to whom it is proclaimed. But it is without effectiveness among the blind. Now, we are all naturally blind in this matter. That is why it cannot, the word cannot enter into our spirit unless God's spirit who is the inward master, gives it access by illumination. There's a role for making arguments. There's a role for apologetics. I love all that stuff. But the decisive move is going to be the Holy Spirit. It's going to appeal to your soul. And Calvin says this, the witness of the Spirit, I love this, lifts reverence of Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. It's not a life-giving word because you understand every archaeological argument about the city of Jericho. It's a life-giving word because as Peter says to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? So that's word. The objective word reveals and it's a rule. That's life. The Spirit working through it opens our eyes to see the glory of God and we are moved and we give our hearts to this word. As we close, I just want to ask practically, what does it mean to hold on to this? How do you hold fast to the word? This phrase, hold fast, it's used elsewhere in the Bible and sometimes it can talk about fixing your attention on something. It can refer to remaining in the same place. It can refer to continuing a body of teaching. So if you're going to hold fast to the Word, there's a lot of things we could say. Be prayerful, be humble, um, be in the Word regularly, read the Bible clearly, meaning don't just treat it like a magic wand. Understand the author's intent and context. Use a study Bible to do this. ESV or NIV study Bible is great. Maybe you'll read the Bible with a friend this winter. Ask a friend to read Philippians with you. I know a couple guys getting together to read Ephesians on Sunday mornings. Maybe you should also read it with your community. You know, Paul, Paul would not be assuming that the people he's writing to have 15 Bible translations on their phone or three Bibles at their house. These people don't have the Bible. The only people who have it are going to be the leaders in the church. At the opening of the letter, he addresses saints in Philippi and the overseers and deacons. The image is always of a community. Friends, the church needs to be a teaching and preaching machine, saturated in the Word of God. So come hungry prayerfully, eager to hear. Go home and think about what was Pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine your eyes to these things. Saturate your small group in the Word. Saturate your service projects in the Word. Saturate your families in the Word. But I want to um, finally just close by kind of whetting your appetite for the Word. The best way to get someone to hold on to something is to get them to want it. And so I'm just going to rapid fire, close with multiple promises from God to you if you hold fast to his word. And then we'll close with a collect. We'll pray together. So just hear this. Hold fast to the word to be equipped for righteousness. 
2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be a complete, equipped for every good work. Hold fast for the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3, Paul says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hold fast for faith, Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. You want more faith? Get more Bible. Hold fast for guidance, Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Hold fast for refreshment for your soul and joy for your heart, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Hold forth For wisdom, Psalm 19, again, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Hold fast for strength, stability, and blessing. Psalm 1, blessed is the man or woman who delights in the law of the Lord. In all his law, they meditate day and night. He or she is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all they do, they prosper. And hold fast for dear life. The Apostle John at the end of his gospel. But these words, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, you may have life in his name. Let's close by praying this this Anglican collect about Scripture. You can stand if you'd like. And this collect, you'll see, has the actual phrase, hold fast in it. Praying together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.